Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 107, The Quaker Martyr. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to discuss Mary Dyer, whose statue sits in front of the State House just to the right of the Hooker entrance. A Puritan born in England, Mary was drawn to the Quaker religion in part because of the opportunities it afforded women to learn and to lead. Not one to back down, Mary was arrested and banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony several times before becoming one of Boston's four Quaker martyrs. But before we talk about Mary Dyer, it's time to take a look at this week's Boston Book Club feature and an upcoming historic event. To kick off the Boston Book Club, we're featuring Diane Rappaport's 2007 nonfiction book, The Naked Quaker, True Crimes and Controversies from the Courts of Colonial New England. The description on Amazon reads, On court days in colonial New England, folks gathered from miles around to listen as local magistrates convened to hear cases. In the abundant records extant from these hearings, we experience the passions and concerns of ordinary people, often in their own words, more than three centuries after the emotion-charged events that brought them to court. Rappaport is a lawyer and historian who, by drawing on these court records, has created an award-winning column for New England Ancestors, the Journal of the New England Historic Genealogical Society. Some of the 25 true stories in The Naked Quaker were previously published there. Others are new to this volume. Rappaport's topics include Witches and Wild Women, Coupling, Tavern Tales, and Sunday Meeting. The title story concerns a Quaker woman who walked into Puritan Sunday Meeting and dropped her dress in front of the gathering to protest the actions of the colonial authorities. Of the naked Quaker, Rappaport tells us, Everyone, regardless of their beliefs, was expected to go to regular Sunday church services and could be fined and otherwise punished if they didn't. This woman and her husband had been prosecuted for not attending, and she decided if she was going to be forced to go to church, she was going to make a statement. She dropped her clothes, according to the court records, which weren't real specific, but it got attention, and she was punished for that. In an interview with Seacoast Online, Rappaport described the book as meticulously researched and colorfully written. I think most of these stories could end up surprising to readers who imagine Puritan New England was some drab, dull place where people sat around in church and never had fun. Or sex. One of my goals is to help people find out that human nature hasn't changed all that much over the past 350 years. Even though they used different words back then, the Puritan days were not dry at all, the way most people think. I've really just tried to bring these people to life because they were really interesting, unruly, irreverent people. We'll include a link to a presentation Diane Rappaport gave to the Topsfield Historical Society, as well as a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring Rochambeau, the French military presence in Boston, held at the Massachusetts Historical Society on the evening of Monday, December 6th. The talk will be given by Robert Zalig, an author and historical consultant who is a specialist on the role of the French forces under the Comte de Rochambeau during the American Revolutionary War and serves as a project historian to the National Park Service for the Washington Rochambeau Revolutionary Route National Historic Trail Project. For this project, he researched and wrote surveys and resource inventories for the states of New Hampshire, 
Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, the District of Columbia, and Virginia, through which the American and French forces marched in 1781 and 1782. A free event, the MHS website describes the lecture as such. In July of 1780, the French troop transport Ile de France sailed into Boston Harbor. Thus began 30 months of uninterrupted French military presence in Boston, as the city became the most important French base in North America, until Christmas Day, 1782, when a fleet sailed from Boston for the West Indies, carrying the Comte de Rochambeau's infantry. This talk provides an in-depth look at this little-known episode in Massachusetts and Boston history. Registration is required. Check out this week's show notes for a link to the event and the sites that make up the Washington-Rochambeau National Historic Trail. And now we turn to this week's main topic. The Global Nonviolent Action Database of Swarthmore College sets the stage for our discussion of Mary Dyer. The Massachusetts Bay Colony of the New World was a Puritan theocratic state in the early 1650s. Puritan leaders did not have much tolerance for people of other religions, and as a result, the Puritan government often persecuted and banished religious outsiders who tried to enter and live in their Puritan towns. A fear was embedded in the Puritan society that if they started to admit outsiders, they would lose their political and religious control of the colony. Beginning in 1656, members of the newly formed Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers, started to arrive in Massachusetts Colony on ships from England, where Quakerism had recently emerged. The Quakers who arrived in Boston's harbor demanded that they be allowed to live in Massachusetts and practice their own religion freely. They were greeted by intense hostility and were often forced to board the next ship out. The first known Quakers to arrive in Boston and challenge Puritan religious domination were Mary Fisher and Anne Austin. These two women entered Boston's harbor on the Swallow, a ship from Barbados, in July of 1656. The Puritans of Boston greeted Fisher and Austin as if they had carried the plague and severely brutalized them. The two were strip-searched, accused of witchcraft, jailed, deprived of food, and were forced to leave Boston on the Swallow when it next left Boston eight weeks later. Almost immediately after their arrival, Fisher and Austin's belongings were confiscated, and the Puritan executioner burned their trunk full of Quaker pamphlets and other writings. Shortly after they arrived in Boston, eight more Quakers arrived on a ship from England. This group of eight was imprisoned and beaten. While they were in prison, an edict was passed in Boston that any ship's captain who carried Quakers into Boston would be fined heavily. The Puritan establishment forced the captain, who had brought the group of eight Quakers to Boston, to take them back to England, under a bond of 500 pounds. During and after the English Civil War of 1642 to 1651, many dissenting Christian groups emerged. George Fox was dissatisfied with the teachings of the Church of England, and he became convinced that it was possible to have a direct experience of Christ without the aid of an ordained clergy. He had a vision on Pendle Hill in Lancashire, in which he believed that the Lord let me see in what places he had a great people to be gathered. Following this, he traveled around England, the Netherlands, and Barbados, preaching and teaching with the aim of converting new adherents to his faith. 
The central theme of his message was that Christ has come to teach his people himself. His followers considered themselves to be the restoration of the true Christian church after centuries of apostasy in the churches of England. One view of Quakerism, modern at that time, was that the relationship with Christ was encouraged through spiritualization of human relations and the redefinition of the Quakers as the family and household of God. Together with Margaret Fell, the wife of Thomas Fell, vice-chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, Fox developed new conceptions of family and community that came with new roles for women. Fox and Fell viewed the Quaker mother as essential to developing faith, love, and piety in her children and household. Quaker women were also responsible for the spirituality of the larger community. Parliament responded to this new threat with two acts. The Act of Uniformity in 1662 prescribed the form of public prayers, administration of sacraments, and other rites of the established Church of England, according to the rites and ceremonies prescribed in the Book of Common Prayer. Adherence to this was required in order to hold any office in government or the church. It also explicitly required episcopal ordination for all deacons, priests, and bishops, which had to be reintroduced since the Puritans had abolished many features of the church during the Civil War. Additionally, the Quaker Act of 1662 required subjects to swear an oath of allegiance to the king, which Quakers did not do out of religious conviction. At the center of our research for this episode is Mary Dyer, who, along with her husband William, initially identified as a Puritan. The Puritans wanted to complete the separation of the Anglican Church from Catholicism that had begun under the rule of Henry VIII. The conformists in England accepted the English monarch as the head of the church, and the form of worship that greatly resembled that in the Catholic Church. The Puritans, as nonconformists, wanted to do away with the vestments, bowing, and making the sign of the cross that were prevalent in Anglican worship, and observe a much simpler and biblical form of worship. Some of the nonconformists, such as the pilgrims, wanted to separate completely from the Anglican Church, while the Puritans wished to reform the Church from within. As the ranks of Puritans began swelling in England, so too did the severity of government intervention, including exile or death for ministers not adhering to the state religious practices. As exploration of the North American continent was then leading to settlement, the Puritans found a way to practice their form of religion by emigrating from England. In 1635, Mary and William Dyer sailed to New England. Mary was likely pregnant, or gave birth during the voyage, because on December 20, 1635, their son Samuel was baptized at the Boston Church, exactly one week after the Dyers joined the church. William Dyer became a freeman of Boston on March 3rd the following year, meaning he was a member of the church and entitled to the civil and political rights belonging to the people of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Just like in England, religion in Boston was messy. Wikipedia gives a good overview of the antinomian controversy. During the earliest days of the Boston Church, before the arrival of Mary and William Dyer, there was a single minister, the Reverend John Wilson. 
1633, one of England's most notable Puritan clergymen, John Cotton, arrived in Boston, and he quickly became the second minister in Boston's church. In time, the Boston parishioners could sense a theological difference between Wilson and Cotton. Anne Hutchinson, a theologically astute midwife who had the ear of many of the colony's women, became outspoken in support of Cotton and condemned the theology of Wilson and most of the other ministers in the colony during gatherings or conventicles held at her house. Differing religious opinions within the colony eventually became public debates and erupted into what has traditionally been called the antinomian controversy. Many members of Boston's church found Wilson's emphasis on morality and his doctrine of evidencing justification by sanctification, a covenant of works, to be disagreeable. Hutchinson told her followers that Wilson lacked the seal of the Spirit. Wilson's theological views conformed with those of all the other ministers in the colony except for Cotton, who instead stressed the inevitability of God's will, or a covenant of grace. The Boston parishioners had become accustomed to Cotton's doctrines, and some of them began disrupting Wilson's sermons, even finding excuses to leave when Wilson got up to preach or pray. Both William and Mary Dyer sided strongly with Hutchinson and the Free Grace Advocates, and it's highly likely that Mary attended the periodic theological gatherings at the Hutchinson home. In May of 1636, the Bostonians received a new ally when the Reverend John Wheelwright arrived from England and immediately aligned himself with Cotton, Hutchinson, and the other Free Grace supporters. Yet another boost for those advocating the Free Grace theology came during the same month, when the young aristocrat Henry Vane was elected as governor of the colony. Vane was a strong supporter of Hutchinson, but also had his own unorthodox ideas about theology that were themselves considered radical. After delivering an inflammatory sermon in January of 1637, Reverend Wheelwright was called upon by the general court on March 9th. He was judged guilty of contempt and sedition. The vote did not pass without a fight, however, and Wheelwright's allies protested formally. Most members of the Boston Church, favoring Wheelwright in the conflict, drafted a petition justifying Wheelwright's sermon, and 60 people signed this remonstrance protesting the conviction. William Dyer was among those who signed the petition, which accused the general court of condemning the truth of Christ. As one of the most, if not the most, critical of the church, Anne Hutchinson faced trial in early November of 1637 for slandering the ministers and was sentenced to banishment on her second day in court. Within a week of her sentencing, many supporters of hers, including William Dyer, were called into court and were disenfranchised. Fearing an armed insurrection, the constables were then sent from door to door to disarm those who signed the Wheelwright petition. Within 10 days, these individuals were ordered to deliver all such guns, pistols, swords, powder, shot, and match as they shall be owners of, or have in their custody, upon pain of 10 pounds for every default. As detailed in Emery Battis's Saints and Sectaries, Anne Hutchinson and the Antinomian Controversy in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. A great number of those who signed the petition, faced with losing their protection and in some cases livelihood, recanted under the pressure and acknowledged their error in signing the petition. 
those who refused to recant suffered hardships, and many decided to leave the colony. Being both disenfranchised and disarmed, William Dyer was among those who could no longer justify remaining in Massachusetts. Unlike William, Mary was able to fly under the radar until March of 1638, when she drew attention to herself by accompanying Anne Hutchinson out of the church after her excommunication from the colony. As people began to ask around about who she was, rumors swirled that she'd recently given birth to a monster baby. Dyer had given birth five months earlier, on October 11, 1637, to a deformed, stillborn baby. After an investigation by Governor Winthrop, he wrote that while many women had gathered for the occasion, that none were left at the time of the birth but the midwife and two others, whereof one fell asleep. Two women were present as midwives, Anne Hutchinson and Jane Hawkins, but the third woman was never identified. Hutchinson fully understood the serious theological implications of such a birth, and immediately sought the counsel of the Reverend Cotton. Cotton instructed Hutchinson to conceal the circumstances of the birth. The infant was then buried secretly. Once Winthrop learned of the so-called monstrous birth, he confronted Jane Hawkins and, armed with new information, then confronted Cotton. As the news spread among the colony's leaders, it was determined that the infant would be exhumed and examined. In his journal, Winthrop provided a description of the corpse. It was of ordinary bigness. It had a face, but no head, and the ears stood upon the shoulders and were like an ape's. It had no forehead, but over the eyes, four horns, hard and sharp, two of them above one inch long, the other two shorter. The eyes standing out, and the mouth also. The nose hooked upward, all over the breast, and back full of sharp pricks and scales, like a thornback. The navel and all the belly, with the distinction of the sex, were where the back should be, and the back and hips before where the belly should have been. Behind, between the shoulders, it had two mouths, and in each of them a piece of red flesh sticking out. It had arms and legs as other children, but instead of toes, it had on each foot three claws, like a young fowl, with sharp talons. The modern medical condition that best fits the description of that infant is anencephaly a partial or complete absence of the brain. In Winthrop's eyes, Dyer's case was unequivocal, and he was convinced that her monstrous birth was a clear signal of God's displeasure with the antinomian heretics. Winthrop felt that it was quite providential that the discovery of the monstrous birth occurred exactly when Anne Hutchinson was excommunicated from the local body of believers, and exactly one week before Dyer's husband was questioned in the Boston church for his heretic opinions. After the antinomian controversy, those who fell out of favor with the church broke off into groups that left Boston to settle in New Hampshire and Rhode Island. The Dyers settled with a contingency that founded the town of Newport. William sailed to England in 1652, as he had business related to the government of the Rhode Island settlements. Records are unclear as to whether Mary sailed with him, or if she had already returned to England for unknown reasons. Mary Dyer's time in England lasted for over five years, and during her stay, she became deeply taken by the Quaker religion. Formerly known as the Society of Friends, the Quakers did not believe in baptism, formal prayer and the Lord's Supper, 
nor did they believe in an ordained ministry. Each member was a minister in his or her own right. Women were essentially treated as equal to men in matters of spirituality, and they relied on an inner light of Christ as their source of spiritual inspiration. In addition to denouncing the clergy and refusing to support it with their tithes, they also claimed liberty of conscience as an inalienable right and demanded the separation of church and state. Their worship consisted of silent meditation, though those moved by the Spirit at times could make public exhortations. They minimized the customs of bowing or men removing their hats. They would not take an oath and they would not fight in wars. They were considered to be among the most reprehensible of heretics. In New England, Massachusetts was the most active colony in persecuting Quakers. The punishments intensified as the Quakers' perceived threat to the Puritan religious order increased. These included the stocks and pillory, lashes with a three-corded, knotted whip, fines, imprisonment, having their ears cut off, banishment, and death. When whipped, women were stripped to the waist, thus being publicly exposed, and whipped until they bled. Despite this hostility, Mary Dyer returned to Boston in 1657. She was immediately identified as a Quaker and jailed. Her husband had to come to Boston to get her out of jail, and he had to swear not to allow her to lodge in any Massachusetts town or to speak to any person while traversing the colony to return home to Rhode Island. However, Mary didn't recognize the authority of the Massachusetts Bay Colony or her husband. She returned in June of 1658 when the fiancé of her friend's daughter was imprisoned and then suffered through whippings and the cutting off of his ear. She and her party were also then imprisoned. The Quaker situation was becoming highly problematic for the magistrates. Their response was to enact even tougher laws, and on October 19, 1658, a new law was passed in the Massachusetts colony that introduced capital punishment. Quakers would be banished from the colony upon pain of death, meaning they'd be hanged if they defied the law. Dyer and several others were then brought to court and then sentenced to banishment upon pain of death under the new law. Dyer again went home to Newport. In June of 1659, William Robinson and Marmaduke Stevenson, two friends of Dyer who'd been imprisoned with her previously, were again arrested and brought back to jail in Boston. When Dyer heard of these arrests, she once again left her home in Newport and returned to Boston to support her Quaker brethren, ignoring the order of banishment. Once again, she was incarcerated. Her husband would not come back to Boston again to fetch her, but on August 30th, he did write a long and impassioned letter to the magistrates, questioning the legality of the actions taken by the Massachusetts authorities. On October 19th, after Robinson and Stevenson were sentenced to death, Mary Dyer appeared before the magistrate. An 1896 text by Horatio Rogers describes the scene. Then Mary Dyer was brought to the bar of the court, and the governor pronounced sentence upon her as follows. Mary Dyer, you shall go from hence to the place from whence you came, and from thence to the place of execution, and there be hanged till you be dead. To which she said, the will of the Lord be done. Take her away, Marshal, quoth the governor. She replied, 
Yea, and joyfully I go. And on her way to the prison, she used similar words with praises to the Lord. To the marshal who had her in custody, she said, Let me alone, for I should go to prison without you. I believe you, Mrs. Dyer, he rejoined, but I must do what I am commanded. Great influence was brought to bear to prevent the execution of the sentences. Governor Winthrop of Connecticut appeared before the Massachusetts authorities, urging that the condemned be not put to death. He said that he would beg it of them on his bare knees that they would not do it. Colonel Temple also addressed the authorities and said that if, according to their declarations, they desired the prisoners' lives absent rather than their deaths present, he would beg of the authorities and would carry them away at his own charge and give them a house to live in and corn to feed on and land for them and their heirs to plant on so that once, within a year, they should be able to provide for themselves. And if any of them should come hither again, he would again fetch them at his own charge. Governor Endicott, the Reverend John Wilson, and the whole pack of persecutors, however, seemed to thirst for blood, and it was determined that somebody must die. The date set for the executions of the three Quaker evangelists was October 27, 1659. Captain James Oliver of the Boston Military Company was directed to provide a force of armed soldiers to escort the prisoners to the place of execution on Boston Neck, near the present-day intersection of West Dedham and Washington Streets and the Cathedral of the Holy Cross. Rogers recounts that Dyer walked hand-in-hand with the two men and between them. When she was publicly asked about this inappropriate closeness, she responded instead with the joy of her soon-to-be martyrdom. It is an hour of the greatest joy I can enjoy in this world. No eye can see, no ear can hear, no tongue can speak, no heart can understand the sweet incomes and refreshings of the Spirit of the Lord which I now enjoy. The gallows consisted of a large elm tree and a ladder. William Robinson was the first of the three to mount the ladder, and when he was positioned, he made a statement to the crowd then died when the ladder was removed. Marmaduke Stevenson was the next to hang, and then it was Dyer's turn after she witnessed the execution of her two friends. Dyer's arms and legs were bound, and her face was covered with a handkerchief provided by the Reverend John Wilson, who'd been one of her pastors in the Boston church many years earlier. She stood calmly on the ladder, prepared for her death, but as she waited, an order of reprieve was announced. A petition from her son William had given the authorities an excuse to avoid her execution. It had been a prearranged scheme in an attempt to unnerve and dissuade Dyer from her mission. This was made clear from the wording of the reprieve. Whereas Mary Dyer is condemned by the general court to be executed for her offenses, on the petition of William Dyer, her son, it is ordered that the said Mary Dyer shall have liberty for 48 hours after this day, to depart out of this jurisdiction, after which time being found therein, she is forthwith to be executed, and in the meantime that she be kept a close prisoner till her son or some other be ready to carry her away within the aforesaid time. And it is further ordered that she shall be carried to the place of execution, and there to stand upon the gallows with a rope around her neck, till the rest be executed, 
and then to return to the prison and remain as aforesaid. The day after Dyer was pulled from the gallows, she wrote a letter to the general court, refusing to accept the provision of the reprieve. In this letter she wrote, My life is not accepted, neither availeth me, in comparison with the lives and liberty of the truth and servants of the living God, for which in the bowels of love and meekness I sought you. Yet nevertheless with wicked hands have you put two of them to death, which makes me to feel that the mercies of the wicked is cruelty. I rather choose to die than to live as from you, as guilty of their innocent blood. The courage of the martyrs led to a popular sentiment against the authorities, who now felt it necessary to draft a vindication of their actions. The wording of this petition suggested that the reprieve of Mary Dyer should soften the reality of the martyrdom of the two men. The Massachusetts General Court sent this document to the newly restored king, Charles II, and in answer to it, the Quaker historian Edward Burrow wrote a short book in 1661. In this book, which we'll link to in the show notes, Burrow refuted the court's claims point by point, provided a list of the atrocities committed against Quakers, and also provided a narrative of the three Quaker executions that had transpired prior to the book's publication. After going home to Rhode Island, Dyer spent most of the following winter on Shelter Island, sitting between the north and south forks of Long Island. The island's owner, Nathaniel Sylvester, used it as a refuge for Quakers seeking shelter from the Puritans. Here, Dyer was able to commune with her fellow Quakers and mull over the vindication prepared by the Puritan authorities to send to England, concerning their actions against the Quakers. She became determined to return to Boston and forced the authorities to either change their laws or to hang a woman. And she left Shelter Island in April of 1660, focused on her mission. Dyer returned to Boston on May 21st, and ten days later, she was once again brought before the governor. The exchange of words between Dyer and Governor Endicott was recorded as follows. Are you the same Mary Dyer that was here before? I am the same Mary Dyer that was here, the last general court. You will own yourself a Quaker, will you not? I own myself to be reproachfully so called. Sentence was passed upon you, the last general court, and now, likewise, you must return to prison, and there remain till tomorrow at nine o'clock, and then thence you must go to the gallows and there be hanged until you are dead. This is no more than what thou saidst before. But now it is to be executed. Therefore, prepare yourself tomorrow at nine o'clock. I came in obedience to the will of God, the last general court, desiring you to repeal your unrighteous laws of banishment on pain of death. And that same is my work now, an earnest request, although I told you that if you refuse to repeal them, the Lord would send others of his servants to witness against them. Following this exchange, the governor asked if she was a prophetess, and she answered that she spoke the words that the Lord spoke to her. When she began to speak again, the governor called, Away with her! Away with her! She was then returned to jail. Though her husband had written a letter to Endicott requesting his wife's freedom, another reprieve was not granted. William Sewell described the execution in his 1844 text, the history of the rise, increase, and progress of the Christian people called Quakers. 
Then Mary Dyer was brought forth, and with a band of soldiers led through the town, the drums being beaten before and behind her, and so continued that none might hear her speak all the way to the place of execution, which was about a mile. With this guard she came to the gallows, and being gone up the ladder, some said to her that if she would return, she might come down and save her life. To which she replied, Nay, I cannot. For in obedience to the will of the Lord I came, and in his will I will abide faithful to the death. Then Captain John Webb said that she had been there before, and had the sentence of banishment upon pain of death, and had broken the law in coming again now, and therefore she was guilty of her own blood. To which she returned, Nay, I came to keep blood guiltiness from you, desiring you to repeal the unrighteous and unjust law of banishment upon pain of death made against the innocent servants of the Lord. Therefore my blood will be required at your hands who willfully do it. But for those that do it in the simplicity of their hearts, I desire the Lord to forgive them. I came to do the will of my Father, and in obedience to his will I stand even to death. Then the minister Wilson said, Mary Dyer, O repent, O repent, and be not so deluded and carried away by the deceit of the devil. To this Mary Dyer answered, Nay, man, I am not now to repent. And being asked by some whether she would have the elders pray for her, she said, I know never an elder here. Being further asked whether she would have any of the people to pray for her, she answered, She desired the prayers of all the people of God. Thereupon some scoffingly said, It may be she thinks there is none here. She, looking about, said, I know but few here. Then they spoke to her again, saying that one of the elders might pray for her. To which she replied, Nay, first a child, then a young man, then a strong man, before an elder in Christ Jesus. After this she was charged with something which was not understood what it was, but she seemed to hear it, for she said, It is false, it is false. I never spoke those words. Then one mentioned that she should have said that she had been in paradise, to which she answered, Yea, I've been in paradise several days. And more, she spoke of eternal happiness into which she was now to enter. In this well-disposed condition she was turned off and died a martyr of Christ, being twice led to death, which the first time she expected with undaunted courage and now suffered with Christian fortitude. While news of Dyer's hanging was quick to spread through the American colonies and England, there was no immediate response from London because of the political turbulence resulting in the restoration of King Charles II to power in 1660. One more Quaker was martyred at the hands of the Boston Puritans, William Ledra of Barbados, who was hanged in March of 1661. A few months later, however, Edward Burrow, whose text we mentioned earlier, was able to get an appointment with the king. In a document dated September 9, 1661, and addressed to Endicott and all other governors in New England, the king directed that executions and imprisonment of Quakers cease, and that any offending Quaker be sent to England for trial under the existing English law. While the royal response put an end to executions, 
The Puritans continued to find ways to persecute the Quakers who came to Massachusetts. In 1661, they passed the Cart and Tail Law, having Quakers tied to carts, stripped to the waist, and dragged through various towns behind the cart, being whipped en route until they were taken out of the colony. At about the time that Endicott died in 1665, a royal commission directed that all legal actions taken against Quakers would cease. Nevertheless, Whippings and imprisonments continued until the 1670s, after which popular sentiment, coupled with the royal directives, finally put an end to Quaker persecution. To learn more about Mary Dyer, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 108. We'll have links to the three historic texts referenced in this episode, artistic images of Mary being led to the gallows, and a 20-minute film titled Mary Dyer death of a Quaker. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming event. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255 and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the contact us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about the pioneering gay rights advocate, Prescott Townsend. (laughs) 